Unarmored Talk presents real-life conversations with people willing to remove their armor to help others. Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is sponsored by Robert and Miriam Norris, GOAT directors at USANA Health Sciences. I've been taking uh, my cell centros now for about a month, and I, I actually have so much energy. Sometimes I'm, I'm just ready to rock and roll when it's time to go to bed. <laughs> Again, if you want to learn more, you can do two, one of two things. You can email me at host at unarmoredtalk.com to learn more or visit their website at takechargeyourhealth.usana.com. That's takechargeyourhealth.usana.com. They have made a world of difference for me, and I'm excited for you guys to feel the same thing I have been feeling and experiencing. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel and watch this video. I'm on my Unarmored Talk playlist at Sergeant Major Mario P. Fields-YouTube. Put in the search engine and it will come up. And don't forget to share with friends and family about this amazing podcast designed to help people develop a accurate way of thinking. Well, here we go. It's been two weeks. Let's get into this next amazing episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Unarmored Talk Podcast. I am so excited to have today's guest, Richard Caruso. I mean, I just had dinner or lunch with him a couple of weeks ago. He's about seven foot six. There's some pictures on Facebook, by the way, to validate my statement. You guys can see, I look like I'm from Baby Gap. <laughs> Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You're asking me to come on your podcast. I'm very honored. No, thanks so much. And ladies and gentlemen, he is also a Marine Corps veteran. Simplify, my friend. Simplify, brother. So can you do me a favor? Tell the listeners and, and viewers just a little bit about yourself. Um, I grew up in upstate New York in a small town called Hornell, New York. I come from a big Italian family. Um, I went in the United States Marine Corps in 1982. I wanted to be in law enforcement. Uh, I went in as a military policeman. I served in the Marine Corps as a Marine Corps corporal. I served at Paris Island, South Carolina as a military policeman. I then went to Iwakuni, Japan, and I ended my tour in the Marines in Yuma, Arizona as a military policeman. And uh, once I got out of the Marine Corps, I tested with the California Department of Corrections. And in 1987, started working with the California Department of Corrections. Wow. Wow. What it, what it, so, so, you know, so uh, four years as in the Marine Corps, then you went right into the uh, Department of Corrections, huh? I had a brief stint as a um, officer working in the county jail in uh, upstate New York in a small town called Bath, New York. And then I was uh, notified to attend the academy in California uh, to become a correctional officer. And during the uh, late 80s, it was a big prison boom in California. Mm. And they were all about build more prisons, build more prisons, and throw away the key. And um, officers at the time, you know, were making six figures. And that right. was in the late 80s. So that motivated a lot of people that, uh, that normally wouldn't work inside of a prison to take the chance, get the training, and um, and uh, start a career with the department. 
Well, let's, you know, let's just on our talk. Let's jump right into the topic. And ladies and gentlemen, if I didn't tell you at the beginning and you don't know who I am, I'm your host, Mario P. Fields, if I just got to remind everybody. And, um, but, you know, I don't want to take that for granted. Sometimes we do have new listeners and viewers. So, so let's jump right into the topic, my friend. Uh, there's a Netflix movie out uh, called Felon, from my understanding. And it's a true story about your life and journey. And you mentioned the prison system and the corrections, you know, occupation, right? That industry. Let's talk about your journey in there. And, and how did Netflix decide to make a, uh, a, a movie about your true life story? Um, it's based on my true life story. Nice. Working, working at the deadliest prison in California mm. named Corcoran State Prison. Corcoran State. Um, at Corcoran State Prison, we had approximately 6,000 inmates. Um, it was a new prison back in 1989 that uh, I helped activate. And uh, they took uh, the adjustment centers from San Quentin to Hatchapi and Folsom. And these adjustment centers at the time in, in, in those three prisons, when those inmates would go to yard, the yard being the size of a uh, small exercise like a handball court, they would go out, the blacks would go out with the blacks, the whites with the whites, right. Hispanics with the Hispanics. And then they built Corcoran and they decided to send these inmates from those adjustment centers down to Corcoran. And they decided we're gonna send them out black, white, Mexican, black, white, Mexican, and integrate these inmates. When for years they had been at each other's throats wanting to get at each other. Right. And because being segregated in those other prisons, they weren't able to do it. So every morning when we would run yard, we had 20 of those little shoe yards. At 8 a.m., you hear gunshots going off in all the buildings because the inmates were running out, getting in physical altercations, which uh, at times warranted uh, less than lethal means or a firearm to be used. And uh, in other cases, uh, uh, correctional officers used lethal force. Uh, we had a mini 14 and we had a nine millimeter that had an explosive round that would go inside the inmate and explode inside the inmate wow. and would not exit into the uh, victim that was being assaulted. Wow. We had more deaths and violence at Corcoran State Prison during this period of time between 1989 and 1994 than all the nation's prisons put together. And, 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 and during your time there, you know, at what, at what point did you go, man, what the heck is going on here? Well, in, in that environment, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four. You sure? I thought you were seven five, man. <laughs> Basically, I was being used, you know, on a lot of use of force situations, cell extractions. Wow. And, and um, when you're in that environment, constantly being used in use of force situations, there's just certain officers that they always pick. And I was always a shield man. I was always the first one that was going to come through that cell door. And I started getting closer and closer to the inner circle of the officers that were very trusted that were um, handling a lot of the use of force situations inside Corcoran. And um, I started seeing things. I mean, 
you got to be real inside that environment. An inmate or a convict knows if he does a certain, um, if he conducts himself in a certain way, we're going to conduct ourselves in a certain way. And basically, it's all about choices and consequences. And he knows if he does something that warrants us that we have to come in that cell, that we're it's going to be a fight and it's going to be on until those handcuffs are put on that inmate. And um, many times it resulted in great bodily injury to the officers, to myself, and to the inmates. Right. And, and, and uh, what I saw was basically officers pushing that gray area to where inmates were being put out on the yard that were enemies. And we knew that these inmates were going to fight. But uh, we took it up through the chain of command, and the chain of command – you know, reiterated what Sacramento was telling, telling uh, Corcoran State Prison was keep running the yards accordingly. So before the inmates would go out on the yard, they'd be warming up in their cell, like boxing, you know, mm -hmm. like this, yeah. getting ready, knowing when that cell door opens up, they're coming down to the cell, uh, Sally Port door, and we're going to put them out there on the yard. And um, I've had them look up to me and beg me and say, Crusoe, you know, I have to fight today. Please don't kill me. So, I mean, I had that power in my hands to basically take this man's life knowing he was going to get in a, in a yard fight. And I just thought that it was crazy that we're putting these inmates out there knowingly, knowing we're going to set them in a, in a direction of a car wreck, knowing that we can prevent it. And people were losing their lives. Wow. And, 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 and it's not like, the inmates really wanted the fight. It was just the way the system from me listening to you, Richard was just, it was creating conditions. These very, it was, it was, uh, no, it wasn't so much about the system. It, it's a it's about bravado. And if, you know, if me and you are cellmates and the guys in the next cell over assaulted me yesterday and me and you can't go out, but our cellies can go out. Right. They better take care of business, or when they come back to our cell, we're going to deal with them. So they had no choice. They had to go out there and fight or look like cowards to their fellow gang members. Got it. Got it. So so, so as this is starting to occur, you know, at what point did, did you say, I, I had enough? You know, at what point did you go, this, this is not align with my values right as Richard Caruso United States Marine Corps veteran and and, and filling your current position w what point did you go I had enough I had a supervisor who was lieutenant and he was a marine also and uh, there was a situation I was a gun officer also so I had the capability of using less than lethal force mm -hmm. or lethal force all I had to do is articulate that great bodily injury was about to happen and that I would get the blessing that it was a good shoot, even if I shot and killed somebody. Right. We never had a bad shooting. Uh, and um, I had heard that an inmate was put out on the yard, uh, African-American inmate, and uh, they invited other officers from the prison to come up into the control booth, one being a female officer that was not even assigned to that unit mm. to basically impress them when that they were going to shoot uh, uh, the inmate that was going out on the yard. Now, I don't believe they were going to shoot him with a lethal round. I, 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 
I truly believe they were going to shoot him with a 37 millimeter that shot blocks out. Right. But they definitely knew that a yard fight was going to happen because it was a daily occurrence inside the security housing unit. And so what happened is the uh, black African-American went out on the yard with his cellmate. And then they let two Hispanic gang members out there that were enemies of the African-Americans. And the Hispanic inmates charged the African-American inmates to start assaulting them. Yeah. The gunner, the uh, yard gun officer, told them to stop, ordered them to get down. They refused their orders to get down. And the yard gun officer ended up shooting the lethal round, nine millimeter, and shot the African-American uh, inmate in the head, exploding his head. And um, once that occurred, everybody went into damage control. I wasn't at the incident, but all the officers that were there were telling me firsthand that it should have never happened. They should have never been put out there on that yard. There was no way they should have been inviting uh, other officers from throughout the prison to come back, come over and watch this, this spectacle, this fight. Right. And, and then when the press release came out from the prison, the official press release said that the inmate that was shot, inmate Preston Tate, was the aggressor against two Hispanic inmates and that Preston Tate refused all orders to stop his aggression, resulting in him being shot that resulted in his death. I knew that was a lie. Right. I knew that Preston Tate was attacked on that yard. And at that point, I went to my supervisor, Lieutenant Steve Rigg, and said, we have a problem here. And uh, me and uh, Lieutenant Rigg started coordinating efforts and taking stuff out of the prison. And we contacted the FBI and um, I started taking stuff and evidence that involved wrongful shootings and wrongful deaths inside the prison and funneling it to the FBI to try to stop the violence. Wow. So here, you, you know, so that was the turning point, essentially, you know, whistleblower who, who's someone who goes, this is not right. No one's doing anything at the moment. So you know what? I, I'm going to be the whistleblower, whatever you want to call me. I'm going to have some courage to start to change things. When you made that choice, did, what emotions did you experience? Any emotions when you chose to to expose some of these wrongdoings in this state prison? It, it was very emotional, sir. Um, you have to realize I had the house, I had a beautiful pool, mm. I had a beautiful family. But in this town that I lived in, there was four other prisons that surrounded this town. So this in this neighbor this neighborhood or this little city was like Copland. Everybody was being the lifestyles were being funded by the California Department of Corrections. Wow. And so I knew that once I went down this mm -hmm. road to expose what was going on inside Corcoran, yeah. that our safety, my wife's safety, my daughter's safety was going to be um, in jeopardy. But I also knew that if I didn't go down this road and stop it, that because of the position that I was in, the trusted position, I was going to kill another inmate. And I was going to get away with it 100%. And I was going to have to live with that the rest of my life. And I had no problem shooting or stopping the aggression of another inmate. Right. But I'm not going to put another human being out there for entertainment or to shoot another human being just to fit in with other people so I'm accepted. 
And that was the decisive moment where I said, wow. I need to stop. That's powerful. The, the, the power of a choice, you, you know, and I'm glad that, you know, ladies and gentlemen, again, on our talk podcast designed to help you understand emotions natural, but, but uh, to think is a choice and, and wow. And this is the first time I'm hearing this, but that's why I love this podcast. I won't take credit for it. It's a blessing from, from, you know, from, from God for me, but just listening to you, Richard, talk about the emotions you had to process family, wonderful, beautiful home. You're in a community that their livelihood is exists because of the, the, the you know, the prisons and, 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 and all that stuff. So now you start to go down this journey. You make the choice. Um, you start collaborate, right? Coordinating, collaborating with, with FBI and other stakeholders. What's next? What starts to happen next? Did anyone find out that it was Richard Caruso that's starting to reveal some of this stuff. Let me let me back up a little bit. Yeah, please. The FBI, the FBI contacted me mm. and said, Richard, we know what you have at your house. We know you have evidence of shootings and uh, uh, excessive force and uh, uh, abuse of authority uh, with VCR tapes, pictures, incident reports. I mean, I was going through files. I was checking out keys and going through files of inmates with flashlights and, and, and copying files. And if I would have been caught, I mean, it would have been my job for sure. But uh, they wanted to meet with me. The, uh, the FBI wanted to meet with me the next day. And um, I said, you know what? Absolutely, I'll meet with you the next day. So I went to work that day and I'm sitting inside the prison and I'm thinking to myself, you know, here it is 1994 and I've been working inside uh, for the department since 88 and um the warden at corcoran state prison had always been there for me i had been in so many use of force situations right. so many different incidents i always got the blessing of the department i always was hailed a good officer and it was on my conscience that i was going to meet with the fbi in the morning and bring down the california department of corrections so i took it upon myself it's like a marine what I'm about to do is like a Marine PFC walking up to the commanding officer general's uh, office and knocking on the door. I left my post. I went to the office of the warden, Warden Smith, and I knocked on his door. And he looked at me and he was shocked to see me, but he recognized me, who I was. And he asked me to come in and I said, and I started breaking it down to him. I said, sir, after I tell you what I'm about to tell you, I'm probably not going to have this job anymore. And I said, I have taken evidence out of the prison of wrongful deaths, shootings, and abuse of force. And I have a meeting with the FBI in the morning. And I'm going to give that evidence to the FBI. And his face was white. He was shocked. And I said, sir, I just want to let you know before I do that, that I'm at peace, that I came to you and I didn't blindside you yeah. with this. And uh, it was my loyalty to him. And uh, he said, you know what? Go ahead and meet with them. And uh, we'll get to the bottom of this tomorrow. And I said, so you want me to meet with the FBI? He goes, yes, go ahead and meet with them. So the next morning, about 7.30 in, in Copland, where I live, right. um, I sent my wife away and my daughter away. And within about 20 minutes, it was about 8 o'clock, and there was a knock at my front door. And I opened my front door 
and there was a male and female FBI agent, and they showed me their badge, and they identified themselves as Agent Oswald and Agent Murphy. And they said, uh, Mr. Crusoe, we understand that you have evidence of uh, abuses at Corcoran State Prison. Can we come in? I said, absolutely, come in. I took him back into my bedroom, and I had all the evidence laid out right. on my bed. And um, the female FBI agent was very nervous. And she's pacing back and forth, back and forth. And I looked at her. I said, why are you nervous? What's going on? And she got right in my face. And she goes, you went to your warden. You told him that we were coming here today. And I'm going to tell you right now, Richard Caruso, if you don't turn this evidence over to us right now, you have two state investigators from the governor's office that, are, that have a warrant to kick down your front door. And they're on the way to the house right now because you stole this evidence out of the state institution. And I was like, she goes, you can turn this evidence over to us right now and we'll have jurisdiction. So immediately, uh, Sergeant Major, I pushed all the evidence to them. We put it in garbage bags and I put my shoes on real fast and we started heading out my front door. And here comes these two state vehicles screeching up to my front yard. And they were the investigators that were gonna kick my door in to get that evidence. And I stepped behind the FBI wow. and the FBI was shielding me and the state agents step out and go, we want to talk to him. And they go, you need to back off. They go, what are you going to talk to him about? They go, you don't need to know. This is the FBI investigation now. And they go, he's an employee of ours. We want to know what he gave you. They said, back down. This is the FBI investigation. And I'm not lying to you, Sergeant Major. The uh, One of the state investigators walked right through the FBI and parted them and came this close to my face and whispered to me, did you give him that evidence? And I, I mean, I was stunned because I thought, why aren't we all on the same page here? Why aren't we all trying to stop what was going on inside Corker State Prison? And I just looked at him and I said, yes, I, I, I gave him, I gave him everything. And he just went like this. And him, the other, him and the other state agent got back into their cars and the FBI put me in their car and they started heading towards headquarters in Fresno, which was about 35 miles Right at a high speed chase. These two agents are chasing us. Now the FBI in the car that I'm in is nervous because they've told these agents to back off. So there's two scenarios going on here. They're running the plate of the state cars to see exactly who these guys are. Right. And they said there's two scenarios. One, these aren't state agents because they're acting so unprofessionally when they were told to back off, they're not backing off. Or two, what this officer just gave us is evidence that's going to bring down the house cards. Yeah. Well, it ended up being two. Number two. They, they whisked me off into Fresno, into the FBI office. And then within 15 minutes, those two agents showed up again at the desk saying, we want to talk to our employee. We want to talk to Caruso. We want to know what he gave you. I mean, they were they were nervous. Like they wouldn't stop. They were not stopping. Mm -hmm. So the head of the FBI came out, um, agent, I think his name was Beasley. And he came out and he told the two state agents, if you don't leave the premises right now, we are going to arrest you because you are impeding this right. federal investigation. And they said, we just want to talk to our employee." They said, "If I'm going to tell you one more time, if you don't leave, you're going to be arrested." 
So the agents left. So the FBI then interviewed me for the next five to six hours. They just shook their head at the end and said, Richard, this is going to be huge. Hmm. And uh, they put me back in their vehicle. They took me home to my house in Copland. And um, when we pulled up, it was probably nine o'clock at night. And uh, the gate on the side of my house was swinging in the wind. They told me to stay in the car. They pulled their weapons. They went around the house to clear the house to make sure there was nobody there waiting for me, finding out that I was the one that was basically bringing down Corcoran. So they cleared the house. They said, Richard, we'll be in contact with you in the morning. You're safe. I go inside. My wife's crying. She jumps in my arms. She says, I haven't heard from you all day. What's going on? All of a sudden, there's a knock at the front door. Oh, no. I go to the door, and guess who it is? Don't tell me as to who is it. The two agents, the two state agents. And they go, Richard, we want to talk to you. I said, I bet you do. I said, I bet you do want to talk to me. I said, why did you act so unprofessionally in front of the FBI? They said, Richard, we just want to know what you gave them. We want to know what they have. I said, well, I'll cooperate with you. They go, will you come down to the police station and interview with us? I'm like, absolutely. I'm trying to appease all branches of law enforcement because right. I'm working for them and I'm just thinking I'm doing the right thing. Right. You just you're just you're just going, I can't, I cannot stand by and continue to watch things that are not right. I'm gonna kill somebody and get away with it. And, and, and that, that was the bottom right. line. People try to put me on a pedestal and say, hero, you know, no, none of that. Right. I was gonna kill somebody 100 percent and 100% get away with it and have to live with it the rest of my life. That didn't have it coming. If that person had it coming, I'd have no problem protecting another individual. Right. But have to live with it and my higher higher power judging me on that. Right. So once once I uh, the uh, state agents took me down to the local police department, now it's about 10.30 at night. And I interviewed with those two state agents on the record for probably two and a half hours. We didn't have cell phones back then, Sergeant Major. And uh, all of a sudden at the end, they're just shaking their heads saying, Jesus Christ, I cannot believe you gave them videotapes, incident reports, pictures. And they put me in the car and they head out into the cotton fields of Hanford, California. And I'm saying to myself, why are they taking me out to this cotton field? I'm thinking they're gonna shoot me in the head. They take me out. There's a there's a payphone out there, and they get and they get on the payphone the one agent, and he calls the director of corrections and says, "Boss, we have Caruso, and we know what he gave them, and it's not going to be good." And that's when the department found out who blew the whistle mm. on corporate state prison. Wow. I, ironically, it was still quiet for weeks after that. And then I got notified by a reporter from the Los Angeles Times, a guy, a reporter named Mark Arax. Mark Arax said, Richard, I know who you are. I want to tell your story to the people of California, to the nation. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in, in, in this being in the papers. I don't want any press with this. He said, Richard, nobody knows who you are. The only way you're going to provide some kind of safety for you and your family is yeah. to let the public know who you are and what you're involved in. Wow. So I realized, I go, that, that, that would be a smart move. So I gave my story 
to the Los Angeles Times and the Los Angeles Times ran my story on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. And that's when 60 Minutes got involved. And that's when all the media, A&E, um, all the media throughout the country started uh, getting involved. But guess what, Sergeant Major? I had to go back to the prison to work. Yeah, so I was going to I was going to ask you about that. So now I'm going back to the prison of 6,000 inmates mm. with officers knowing he's the one that is jeopardizing our meal ticket. He's shining the light on our secrets. And uh but you know, sir, in life um I I kind of equate it to uh, a Marine walking through the Ville, seeing another Marine or seeing a supervisor doing something um, ungodly to, say, civilians or to babies. I know you, Sergeant Major, you're not going to just stand there and let that happen. You're going to take action to stop it. And that's where the Marine came out in me to where it was like, I don't care what happens to me. I got to go back to work. Every day I, I got in my vehicle, I didn't know if it was going to explode. Um, my house was vandalized. When I wasn't at home, they were knocking on the windows. My wife was calling 911. They're hiding in the closet. My wife and my daughter. I mean, it was hell for them. Yeah. I, but I, I, I accepted that if something happens to me, that I'm good with the man upstairs. Right. And that's what was important to me, that I had basically came to accept that something was going to happen to me, but I would be good with it. And so ironically, what happened in the, a huge twist in my story is the people that you think are the bad guys, the Mexican mafia, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Nuestra Familia, the Texas Syndicate, the Aryan Brotherhood, 6,000 inmates, they put a protective circle around me inside that prison because they couldn't believe that a cop stood up to stop the violence and the killings of their people. Nice. And they wouldn't let nothing happen to me. I got chills, man. That is 6,000 people, human beings, that have done things in their lives, but that doesn't mean they're not bad, right? I mean, there's there's always rehabilitation opportunities. That's, that's the misconception is that there's, people think these prisons are full with murderers and rapists and child molesters. I'm going to tell you, for people that have been in prisons, we know that the majority of inmates in prison today throughout America have a drug or alcohol connection. And a lot of them are nonviolent drug offenders. And I am not soft on crime. I believe an eye for an eye. Right. But in California at the time, we were warehousing a lot of nonviolent drug offenders. Right. At that time. You, you, you know, wow, what an amazing journey. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I wish... I could talk to Richard. We talk a lot, by the way. I could talk to Richard for five hours. What an amazing journey, my friend. And 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 just to think you had the courage, you know, in, in your decision to be aware of your emotions, but to choose to make a difference and not be a bystander. Look at what has happened, um, you know, then and, and the, the impact that has had throughout probably throughout the nation um, well, what's ironic sir is that yeah. th three years ago i was doing i was helping prince harry's charity mm -hmm. his veteran charity and uh, i was in los angeles and i was in the hood 
And I don't know if you ever seen the movie Training Day. Yeah. With Denzel Washington, where they, the, the gang members have Ethan Hawke in the tub and they're about to shoot him. But they pull out the wallet of one of the gang members' uh, nieces and they go, how did you get this? Well, my, my come to Jesus moment came in the hood in Los Angeles. And this is 20 years later, sir. Wow. I'm by myself in the hood. And this Mexican mafia member comes up to me. And I know he's Mexican mafia because I see his tattoo of the handprint. And right. he's like, hey, Holmes, what are you doing in our neighborhood? And I explained that I was doing something for veterans. He's like, right on. Yeah. And I go, you done time in uh, California? He goes, yeah, Corcoran in the 90s. I said, me too. He goes, you too. He goes, what's your name? He goes, my name. I go, my name is Caruso. And he went like this with his glasses. He goes, do you know what your name means in this neighborhood? And he came forward at me. And I didn't know if he's going to whistle and people are going to come out. Right. He came forward and he hugged me. And he hugged me and he goes, do you know how many lives of men, husbands, and children that you save in this neighborhood? And then Sergeant Major, I said, can I get this on video? Because I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that. The memory, the memory of people that had been done wrong, they don't forget they don't forget. And that thing that you know of karma comes full circle. And, and, and I want to reiterate to you, sir, there's no way that I could have made it. No way without the support of the good officers doing the dangerous job every right. day. The good uh, veterans across this country, my peers, um, I was embraced by, um, embraced by them. And if I had been abandoned by the public, there's no way psychologically I could have made it. You're yeah. talking six years, six years, sir. I fought the state of California, testifying in front of the California Senate, wow. changing the system out there for better, for the better. And in the end, that's how Hollywood got involved and got involved with my story. But um, Thank the movie fell out on Netflix is based on my true story yeah. that happened at Corker State Prison. Thank goodness, Richard. And I'm so honored to have met you, my friend. And also um, have been able to take a live picture with you to show everybody he is seven foot five in my eyes. Richard, looking back on that journey, if you could leave our listeners and viewers with one thing today, what would it be, my friend? Sometimes, sometimes in life, we come to that fork in the road of right and wrong. Whether you're working in a personal as a in, in your personal job or career. Um, sometimes we work within the gray area of right and wrong. And in law enforcement, we do that many times. Yeah. I'm guilty of doing that myself. It has to exist. There has to be a deterrent that if you do A, we're going to do B. But sometimes within that gray area, some people can't handle that authority. And um, all I can say is my heart goes out to people that are whistleblowers that didn't have the media attention that I had, yeah. that are consumed by the monster of Xerox or uh, Exxon because they are coming forward, but because their story didn't generate media, the company uh, financially exhausts them. They go in their home, they put a pistol in their mouth and they, and they take their own life. Um, so I guess what I would wanna leave with the viewer is you gotta be able to live with yourself. And when you come to that fork in the road and it's that come to Jesus moment to where you know what's right and wrong, um, ask yourself, am I going to wake up 
down the road and be able to live with the decisions that I'm making today. And being the, being the case that we were dealing with life or death, human beings, there's no way I could have lived with myself without taking action to stop the violence at Corcoran State Prison. We had some of the most notorious inmates at Corcoran State Prison, sir. I had Charles Manson. I took, here's, here's, here's some letters from Charles Manson right here. There's a signature wow. right there. Wow. Here's a, here's a card from him. You can see on the back, addressed to me. Wow. And I mean, we had notorious prisoners there. And I've been with the worst of the worst. But I've also been with nonviolent drug offenders. I've also been with people that shouldn't even have been in prison. And I am not a bleeding heart. You know, I'm all about, you right. know, an eye for an eye. But um, I, I, I wish your viewers would take away and when they watch Felon, know that movie, I helped produce it, I helped write it, and I acted in it, but it's based on my true life story. Yeah. But I want them to say to themselves, what would I have done? Mm -hmm. What would I have done? And that's the big thing I want the viewer to take away with, what would I have done? And nine out of 10 times, because it was proven inside Corcoran, we had 6,000 inmates and 800 officers. And 97% of those officers did nothing because they were getting paid big money by the California Department of Corrections. They saw the same violence that I did. Right. And they chose, they chose money and financial gain over doing the right thing. And I think looking back on it now, many of those officers um, question that. And, and I know that for a fact, uh, say, Richard, uh, we should have came forward when you came forward. Um, money has a tendency to... Uh, make us do evil things. And yeah. um, I was not ever motivated by the money. I was, I was motivated by my higher power, knowing that I'm gonna take another human's life and I'm gonna get away with it. And am I gonna be able to live with that? And there's just yeah. no way, no way. No, th thank you so much, Richard. Ladies and gentlemen, you guys heard from Richard Caruso. Um, we all are faced with choices every second of the day. And uh, to, to emotionally react is a natural thing for humans across the world. But to think through things and make a choice, that's a choice. And Richard Caruso is an excellent example of someone who made a choice uh, to make a difference, which he, he saved countless lives and has impacted human beings uh, throughout the state of California and the nation. Richard, thank you so much. Again, Simplify Marine. And uh, thanks. Yeah, what's up? I just want to say before I go that I want to give love and credit to people like yourself and the other veterans and the other people in law enforcement that helped me make changes today because I travel a country and I do veteran advocacy and I do law enforcement advocacy. I talk to special groups. I talk to troubled youth. And without people like you, Sergeant Major, and others out there in our community embracing me, trusting me and empowering me to make a difference because we're stronger as a team. I can't do it by myself. I'm just so honored to be on your podcast. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm blushing, ladies and gentlemen. If, if, if I mean, some of you guys are listening, so maybe you can feel the, the blush through the, uh, the virtual headset. But thank you so much. I'm serious. What an amazing journey, Richard. And we'll, we'll continue to chat after we uh, get off the air here. But, but ladies and gentlemen, again, check him out felon on netflix based on a tr his true life story 
changed the entire system. Six-year battle, Richard Crusoe, United States Marine Corps veteran. Thank you. I love you, brother. Semper Fi, my friend. Semper Fi, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, until next time, God bless you all. We'll see you. See you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to another episode on Unarmored Talk. Uh, truly appreciate, appreciate you guys. And don't forget, email me at host at unarmoredtalk.com if you want to learn more about the cell centrals that I'm taking. And also, you can visit uh, our sponsor website, sponsor's website at takechargeyourhealth.usana.com. And that's Robert and Miriam Norris. What a wonderful family, wonderful couple. And um, until next time in a couple of weeks, you guys be safe out there. God bless. I'll see you later.